All right, welcome to the Collector Car Podcast. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. Today, I am going to talk about my $1 million dream collection. Now, this is pie in the sky, and I'd like to hear from you because I would like to know what would be in your $1 million dream collection. Would it be one car? Would it be 10 cars? Would it be 50 cars? I would love to know. So if you would like to share that information, just shoot me a note, gstanley at armsothebees.com. And if I can, a future episode, I will review a few of the cool collections that come through. Okay, this is a call out to my listeners. I do not have a lot of sponsors for this podcast on purpose because I don't want to waste your time with products I am not crazy about. Well, I do have two that I am crazy about. The first one is LLC TLC. This is where you can save money on your car registration every year. You can set up a Montana LLC and pay no sales tax on your vehicle purchases, which is really amazing. Now, you can also permanently register your classic cars in Montana to avoid any annual renewal fees. And as your registered agent, LLC TLC will handle everything for you so you never have to step foot in Montana to take advantage of this incredible offer. Now, as a listener of this podcast, they are offering 30% off your entire package. Now, to get this, simply go to llctlc.com slash classic or mention this podcast when you call them directly my other big sponsor of this podcast is euro classics out of dayton ohio now that's euro classic with an x.com if you want to reach them in person you can reach them at 937-299-1311 now this is where i get all of the work done on my porsche i just had uh, my gto in there my mustang's been in there it is the place to go if you want awesome service at an extremely competitive price So when you go there, just ask for Dale and tell him that I sent you. Now, as a car specialist for Arms Sotheby's, I have been fortunate to visit some incredible car collections, and each collection is unique and different. That's actually one of the things I really love about this position is seeing what drives the passion for different auto enthusiasts. Now, a couple of examples. You can go to my YouTube channel and check out the collection of 187 Chevrolets, there was not even one Cadillac in this collection, which is pretty insane. There's another collection I know of, 190-something cars, but there's 45 Shelbys along the wall in a row from 1965 to 1970. One of the common themes I see out there are all original cars, unrestored, untouched preservation cars. People collect one car from each decade. I know of a collection where there's over 240 cars, but they are all cars that are American-made, not even one car from another country. Obviously, we have the all-Porsches and even the all-white Porsches, as seen in the recent Arms Sotheby's sale of the white collection. Now, I used to think a great collection would be, let's say, topless Shelbys, so that could be the 260 AC Cobra, the 289 Shelby Cobra 427, but it also includes... The 1966 GT350 convertible, they only made four of those. 1967 GT350 convertible, they only made, I believe, one of those, or it was a GT500. How cool would it be to see those in a line? Now, right now, I actually have an accidental collection. I only have two cars. Uh, What's interesting, they both are color on color, and they both are the most powerful example for that make and model of that year. The first one's my 1965 Ford Mustang Fastback. It is a Hypo, so that is the K-Code engine designation. These are the 271 horsepower version that went, a lot of them went to Shelby to turn into GT350s. So very, very cool car. It is in driver rough condition, which is fun because I can just, you know, drive it down a dirt road and not have to worry about it. 
The other really cool thing about it is it has a rare Arvino exhaust, which is only available for five months. It sounds like basically aftermarket glass pack headers, you know, but it's the factory sound. The other cool car I have, and each one of these will be a, a focus of a future episode, is a 1966 Pontiac GTO. Now, this is a car I just recently found, and it is totally unrestored, special paint, all sorts of fun options on this car. Now, this one is special, like I said, because of the rarity of being unrestored, but also it's the biggest engine of the year, the 389, uh, you know, has the triple carburetors, and it's a four-speed. Uh, other rare options include AC, red interline fenders. So, you know, color on color, that's gold on gold. The other one's blue on blue. It's an accidental collection, but I think that's a pretty cool theme to have. Now for my choices today, I use valuation data for car number two or number three condition, as I like to drive my cars and having cars at this price point allows for more cars and I won't feel bad about taking them down the road for a rally. Now, like I said, I wanna know what your dream collection is. So let me know at gstanley at rmsothebees.com. Okay, the first car in my $1 million dream garage is this 1966 Shelby GT350H, which designates the Hertz model. Now, the reason I picked this car is because it is worth about $190,000, latest 12 months down 5%. Now, I would have to add 25% to the price if I chose one of the four-speed models, which I cannot afford if I'm trying to get my million-dollar list here. These are black on black, most of them. Now, what I would really want, if it was an unlimited budget, would be a 1965 GT350 or one of the four 1966 GT350 convertibles. Now, from RM Sotheby's, the original Shelby GT350 proved such a success that in September of 1965, Shelby made a deal with Hertz to offer his hopped-up Mustang as part of the rental car company's new sports car club, cleverly promoting the new Shelby through what amounted to paid test drives by potential buyers. For $17 a day and 17 cents per mile, anyone could walk up to the local Hertz counter and experience the exhilarating drive in one of these cars. A feeling enthusiasts still avidly pursue today. Shelby supplied a total of 1,000 GT350H models to Hertz in 1966, approximately 915 of which were equipped with the C4 automatic transmission. Now these did come in a variety of colors. I believe red is the rarest, which may be 17 red and gold. GT350s, there was green and gold, white and gold, blue and gold. So pretty rare. Like I said, I would have to have the automatic, not that I don't want the four speed, but in keeping with my $1 million budget, I could not afford it. Okay, the next car for my $1 million dream garage would be this, a 2005 Ferrari 575M Marinello. Now I picked this because I just think they're beautiful Ferraris. They're the last of a breed, analog supercars, front engine V12. You could get them with the manual gated shifter. Now for my collection, again, I'm having to stick with the automatic. In number two condition, this $165,000. Now these have been on a tear lately, going up 19.6% in the last 12 months. Like I said, if I wanted the six speed, I would have to more than double this price, which I could not afford with my theoretical dream budget. Now my ideal colors would be maroon on maroon. I've seen that before. It's actually great color on color combination. If I had an unlimited budget, I would pick the 550 Barchetta, but those are approaching $500,000 right now. 
Now from RM Sotheby's, few Ferraris of the modern era have been as eagerly awaited and more joyously received than the 550 Maranello, unveiled at the Nürburgring circuit in July of 1996. It was the company's first front-engine rear-wheel drive V12-powered two-seater since the much-lauded 365 GTB4 Daytona that had bowed out some 23 years earlier. And to many onlookers, marked the return of Ferrari to the glory of the firm's golden age. In 2002, Ferrari rolled out the 550's much-improved successor, the 575 Marinello, with upgrades that included a larger and more powerful engine, the efficient paddle shift F1 transmission, larger disc brakes, and adaptive suspension that minimized pitch during shifting, improved aerodynamics, and a renewed interior. With 515 horsepower on tap, it sprinted from 0 to 60 miles per hour in only 4.2 seconds to 150 miles an hour in 22 seconds and could reach a top speed of 202 miles per hour, a figure once unimaginable for a comfortable two-passenger Gran Turismo. Now, like I said, I'd love to have one of these. I'm flipping through the pictures online. Uh, a lot of interior shots here, uh, but I could not afford a 550 because those were all manual cars. It had to be a 575 with the automatic transmission. Now, after keeping tabs, my running total between these two cars is up to $355,000, and I will reach $1 million here shortly. Okay, so we've had an American V8. We've had a front-engine Ferrari V12. Well, now it is time for a German car. The next car from my $1 million dream garage is this 1998 BMW E39 M5. Number two condition, $74,000, latest 12 months, down 5.4%. Now, this is from thedrive.com. Then the third generation E39 M5 was introduced in 1998, and it had the tact and delicacy of the Kool-Aid man next to fresh drywall. The high-strung inline six was swapped out for an individual throttled-bodied semi-dry sump, all-aluminum head and block V8, that put out just a tad under 400 horsepower, and it sounded like it. Despite its appearance, with a body virtually unchanged from more mundane versions of the 5 Series line, there would be no more confusion as to how that BMW just blew by on the Autobahn. If the quad-tipped exhaust didn't cue you in, the sonorous roar of a 7,000 RPM redline V8 sure would. Now, from Haggerty, the BMW E39 M5 is the ultimate iteration of the original M5 formula that gave us exceptional performance in an unassuming everyday sedan. Refined and a whole lot of fun to drive, Car and Driver called it the most desirable sedan in the world. Now, for this one, I would do a wagon. I would do, you know, the four-seater. It doesn't matter. Very, very cool. My running total so far is $429,000. Okay, the next car that would make it into my dream garage is this, a 1971 Porsche 911S, number two condition, $167,000, latest 12 months, up 28.5%. Now, I would have to add 10% for a five-speed, which you have to have a manual transmission in a 911. Now, from RM Sotheby's, the S variant of the 911 launched in 1966, two years after the rear-engine sports car first made its debut. Easily distinguishable by its stylish Fuke alloy wheels, the 911S featured a heavily revised engine producing 160 horsepower, 30 horsepower more than the base model. Improved handling was achieved in 1969 courtesy of the lengthened wheelbase. In 1970, the 911's 2-liter air-cooled flat-six engine was enlarged to 2.2 liters, 
producing 180 horsepower when fitted with Bosch mechanical fuel injection as in the 911S model. By this time, Porsche offered three models of 911, the base 911T, the luxury 911E, and the top of the line performance 911S, all of which were available either as a hardtop coupe or open top Targa. With partial aluminum bodywork and improved light alloy brakes, the 911S provided an exemplary platform for spirited high-speed driving. Now my running total so far, I am up to $569,000, so just over the halfway point. So I've had the rear engine Porsche, I've had the Shelby, I've had the Ferrari, I've had the BMW, so what's next? How about big 1950s American luxury? All right, so this is a 1957 Chrysler 300C convertible, $92,000, up 1.8% latest 12 months. From RM Sotheby's, the legendary Chrysler 300C Motor Trend's Car of the Year in 1957 was developed from the outset as a completely integrated package. One of the fastest and most powerful American production cars, the 300C was also one of the most expensive. This updated version of the three-year-old model continued precedent set the previous two years with another bump in horsepower from 340 to 375. Virgil Exner's forward-looking design was continued, although the front end was wider and louder as were the enlarged tail fins. The standard 300C engine enlarged to 392 cubic inches was equipped with two four-barrel carburetors, a nickel block, solid lifter cams, and delivered 375 horsepower. Exceptional handling resulted from a lower center of gravity, lower placement of the weighty engine, and the careful location of the rear leaf springs. While not campaigned in NASCAR, the 300C swept flying mile competition at Daytona Beach with a speed of 134 miles per hour. Chrysler engineers clocked 145.7 miles per hour at the Chelsea Approving Grounds with a mildly modified and in-stock form. The 300C could reach 60 miles an hour in less than 8 seconds. Now my running total so far is $688,000. The next car on my list for my dream $1 million garage is this. The 1996 Dodge Viper GTS, $92,000, up 8.9% latest 12 months. Now I picked this one because it's the first year of the GTS. It's got the iconic blue with white stripes and chrome wheels. I do love some chrome wheels. All right, from RM Sotheby's, the second generation Dodge Viper debuted in 1996 with a familiar Roadster body style and gained for the first time a GTS coupe variant later in the year. Referred to by some as the double bubble, the roof featured raised sections to accomplish driver and passenger helmets. Design clues drew inspiration from Peter Brock's Shelby Cobra Daytona. Besides being the first closed roof Viper to come from the factory, the GTS was also the first variant of the Dodge Viper to offer air conditioning, power windows, and door locks as standard equipment. Meanwhile, improvements to the 8-liter V10 engine increased output for the GTS to a claimed 450 horsepower and 490 pound-feet of torque. 50 horsepower and 25 pound-feet of torque more than the first-generation Viper produced. A six-speed manual remained the only available transmission. I just think these are absolutely stunning, gorgeous. It's still early version, so it's still pretty raw, but you do have some of the creature comforts, like I said before, air conditioning, power windows, and door locks as standard equipment. I would love to put one of these in my garage. It would have to be the blue with the white stripes. Okay, the next car is German again. I didn't realize I had so many German cars until this actual podcast. 
1978 Mercedes W123. Now this is the 280TE version I'm sharing here. $25,000 up 62.8% the latest 12 months. Now this information is from Haggerty. By the emission of Mercedes-Benz, the W123 platform was not revolutionary, but rather a thoroughly mature mid-range car combining the latest engineering with tried and tested design features. This sober summary reflects the lasting legacy of the W123, a solidly built automobile with timeless poise and class. Introduced in 1976, the W123 platform included a four-door sedan and sleek coupe. The W123 replaced the aging W114 and W115 platforms, which at the time were the most successful Mercedes passenger cars to date. The incoming 123s were styled after the new S-Class, which was a clear break with the classic style of the Stroke 8. The W123 offered a longer wheelbase, a wider track, and a larger body. The 280C Coupe was 85mm shorter than the sedan and was absent the B-pillar, which lent the car a unique and sporty style. The Coupe and sedans were soon joined by the diesel power 300TD station wagon in 1978, the first Mercedes wagon, which is, the, is what I'm showing online here on YouTube. The cars were immensely popular and less than a year into production, many dealers had a 12-month waiting list. Cars for immediate purchase were offered in a short sort of black market at a healthy premium. The station wagon, or Touring as it was called by Mercedes, was on a backlog of three years by the 1980s. This is testament not only to the popularity of the Touring, but also Mercedes creation and then domination of the luxury or lifestyle wagon market. Okay, my running total is now up to $805,000, $195,000 remaining, and I will tell you right now, there's only four cars left. Okay, in my ultimate $1 million dream garage, I have to have a JDM car, Japanese domestic market car, and there is no car better than this, a 1989 Nissan Skyline GTR, Number two condition, $83,000. Now this one is down 17% the latest 12 months. From RM Sotheby's, the Nissan Skyline GTR is quite possibly the most famous Japanese sports car ever assembled. Known the world over for its appearances in popular media and atop motorsport podiums, the monstrous performance capabilities of the GTR are often preceded by its iconic reputation. From humble beginnings as a modestly powered economy platform of the late 1950s, each successive generation has pushed the boundaries of automotive technology, design, and performance. As Nissan's flagship sports model for more than 50 years, the top-of-the-line Skyline GTR remains the pinnacle of Japanese performance and desirability. Cleaved from the Skyline platform in 1969 and heavily modified for motorsport, the first-generation 2000 GTR saloon was a machine hell-bent on domination, amassing 49 consecutive victories between May 1969 and October 1971. In 1973, Nissan would shelve the model for 17 years until May 1989, when they introduced the R32 Skyline GTR. The R32 was, for the time, truly a monument to over-engineering. All-wheel steering, front and rear limited slip differentials, all-wheel drive system, multi-link independent suspension, all-wheel anti-lock brakes, and the versatile engine, which proved a near-limitless tuning platform. The 2.6-liter inline-six twin-turbocharged engine produces a very conservatively rated 280 horsepower 
and 260 pound-feet of torque at full power in stock trim. Much like its predecessor, the R32 GTR dominated sanctioned motorsport series and clandestine racing events, earning the name Godzilla. The sleek, if boxy look, advanced power management technology, and twin turbo power plant capable of wide ranging performance modifications immediately cemented the GTR as a popular, ready made street legend. Now, if you're keeping tabs, I am up to $888,000. Okay, the next significant car for my ultimate $1 million dream garage is this, the 1967 Corvette Coupe. Now, this is the base 327 V8 engine, $94,000. This is actually down 15.2% latest 12 months. Now, what I really want would be the 427 435 horsepower convertible Roadster, but I cannot afford that with my budget, so I'm going with the base engine. To me, this is the prettiest Corvette ever made. Now from Haggerty, the 1967 Chevrolet Corvette would be the last of the C2 or mid-year generation of America's sports car. The C3 developed by Larry Shinoda's Mako Shark concept arrived for 1968. Sales dropped to 22,940 cars for 1967. Although today, many people view the 1960 model as the most desirable. Well, thank you. Again, the 327 cubic inch, 300 horsepower V8 was the base engine with the L79 350 horsepower small block V8 also attracting just under 6,400 buyers. And I correct myself, I picked the L79, so the 350 horsepower version. There were four big block V8s, all displacing 427 cubic inches. Rated outputs were 390 horsepower, 400 horsepower, and let's see, 435 horsepower, and there was the really rare L88. Now they only made 20 of those, that were built for 1967, and they are among the most highly prized Corvettes of all time, regularly trading for over $2 million. So my running total now is $982,000. I only have $18,000 left, so let's see. How will I spend this money? All right, the second to the last car for my $1 million dream garage is this, the 2005 Mazda Mazda Speed MX-5 Miata. $13,500, up 3.1%. Now, honestly, there's some other versions of the Miata I would rather have, but I couldn't afford them. They all popped into the $25,000 range. There's some really rare one-off kind of special anniversary or, you know, different models, ones with hard tops, a little bit more horsepower and such. Uh, but this is the one I found that I could actually fit within my budget. Now, this is from Car and Driver. From the moment it appeared in 1989, we've been big fans of the little Miata, it made our 10 best list in its original form, and then again when the fixed headlight version debuted in 1998. The Miata was never a powerful car, but it has always been light and nimble and very entertaining. Evidently, we were not alone in our admiration. From the car's debut until last New Year's Day, Mazda has sold over 311,000 Miatas in the U.S. Okay, my running total now is 995 thousand five hundred dollars so i don't have a lot of money left and i'm going to pick a car you've probably never heard of the last car and i hope you can join me on youtube for this the last car in my pick which will fill out those last forty five hundred dollars or so is a 1983 isuzu imark now if you're watching on youtube the picture i'm showing is a silver car with red interior it's got cool little side stripes and really nice wheels 
the picture you see on YouTube right now is exactly the car I'm talking about. This is the car my dad owned when I was 15 years old, learning how to drive stick shift, diesel powered, uh, just a really neat car, slow as molasses, but when you're going slow and someone's tailgating you, you can rev the engine, drop the clutch, punch a big puff of black smoke comes out of the back of the car and they hold back or they pass you, either one, either one's great. All right, so this is from The Truth About Cars. Sorry, Hemi Cuda fans, but this is one of my most prized finds. As you know all too well by now, The Truth About Cars is not about haunting car shows for immaculate trailer queens. It's about documenting the cars that were once so kind of common on our streets and now are mostly gone. When is the last time you ran across a Generation 1 iMark? There's probably a thousand Hemi Cudas, genuine or cloned, for every iMark that is soldering along. And let's not forget that in addition to just its rarity, the iMark also represents GM's first big global car adventure. The T cars were made and sold by the millions all over the globe. I assume you recognize the mildly disguised Chevette or Opel Cadet C when you see one. That blew my mind. This car is based or shares a platform with the Chevy Chevette. My dad also had one of those and that was one of the worst cars ever. But uh, the Isuzu iMark was just awesome. Absolutely loved it. There's two stories I'll tell you real quick. One of them is that when I was driving home from Quincy Steakhouse as a server, uh, apparently we forgot to tighten the plug on the oil. So on my way home, all the oil leaked out and the car, the engine froze up. What did my dad do? He came up and he just filled it back with oil and it went for like another 30,000 miles. No problem whatsoever. The other story I'll give you is my dad and I actually drove this car up to Maine from Jacksonville, Florida, going camping. We had a trailer behind us, and when we would go up a hill, everybody would pass us, and then when we would go down a hill, we would pass them. It was just such a slow, slow, slow car, but I have such wonderful memories. I would love to find one of these. Like I said, they're worth probably 1500 bucks right now, and that's why that's the last car from my million-dollar garage. Anyways, please share your collection with me. Send me a note gstanley at rmsotheby's.com and if i can i will definitely share it on one of the future podcast episodes as always thanks for listening thanks for watching thanks for sharing and i will talk to all of you next week thanks for listening to the collector car podcast don't forget to give us a nice rating on itunes and be sure to follow us on instagram and everywhere else at the collector car podcast